Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. I didn't recognize that I was a victim of domestic violence or abuse. I just thought it was, you know, somebody that I, you know, had issues. Um, you always feel that you can fix those issues. I was in a relationship for 18 years with my perpetrator, and when I decided to leave him, I knew it wasn't going to end well because I was always threatened. With, with what was going to be, there was only one way for me and that was in a wooden box. And he came to my place of work armed with a sawn off shotgun and ended up shooting me. He went off and hung himself and six weeks later my 16 year old son committed suicide because of the tragedies of what happened. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. I'm really happy to welcome back my very special guest, survivor and all-round warrior, Rachel Williams. In this episode, we continue our discussion about what was going on in the relationship and how Williams's behaviour escalated and landed him in prison. But even from prison, he laid down the rules and regulations dictating what Rachel could and couldn't do. You see, the control didn't stop there. Now again, these aren't easy discussions, but they're very necessary in my opinion. They're upsetting and they're angry-making. Listener discretion is advised. But we should all feel uncomfortable, upset and angry when listening to violence and murder and someone else's trauma. And let's not forget, it takes real courage and mental fortitude, not only to survive, but to tell your story. So let's dive back in where we left off. So we were talking about him being a bouncer and a doorman and always getting into trouble because of his violence. Well, new regulations came in that meant that he would have to go on a training course and that you wouldn't be allowed to be a doorman if you had criminal convictions. So that's why he couldn't continue as a doorman. So he, he lost money. And I think you mentioned that he did his, took his license for driving lorries, etc. So he started working for Asda. But he was skimming cigarettes, wasn't he? He had a scam that he would take cigarettes and he would sell them on. And that ended up with him being arrested. Can you say a little bit about what happened and, and the police coming round to search the house? Yeah, so he came up with this idea that he was going to steal cigarettes and I, I'll never forget it. And I just really thought, well, why, why do you want to steal cigarettes? You don't even smoke. You know, I was still sort of that sort of naive. Um, so when he said, you know, I, you know I, I could find a way how to open the cages and because of his physical strength, he could actually unhinge the cages, even with the cable ties on, and keep them intact and physically do it. So 
in my head, he was going to come home with 200 fags. Um, I don't know why I just thought, you know, because I know when people go on holiday and buy cigarettes, it's always in like a 200 sleeve. Because I bought fags for my sister, um, cigarettes for my sister when I've gone on holiday because I don't smoke. And um, so I thought he was going to bring 200 fags home. But he wasn't. He was 5,000. Every time he was doing a load then, he was stealing 5,000 fags and then he'd be selling them. Yeah, this went on for 18 months. But he was arrested, wasn't he? And he called you and he was worried because he had a firearm in the shed and he wanted you to to remove it. But the police didn't find that firearm, but they did find a cache of weapons under the bed that, that you didn't know was there either. And it was a pistol, stun gun, um, CS gas, pepper spray, catapult gun, truncheons, hunting knives, all these things that the police obviously seized and he was arrested and he spent some time in prison, didn't he? Four months in prison. And you talked about having peace for the first time that whilst he's in prison, you managed to get some respite. Yeah, it was it was uh, only for a while, though, um, because... He was still backing his orders down the telephone to me um, and out of the proceeds of, of the, uh, the the cigarettes he was skimming, he bought a burger van, a big catering trailer. So with Darren almost knowing for certain he was going to go to prison for the uh, firearms and the contraband, uh, the theft uh, from the employer, um, he then gave me lessons on how to hitch up the trailer onto his Land Rover and tow it down to the docks and set it up to bring it back because obviously many still need to be paying the bills. Darren was now in prison, out of work. Um, you know, he was going to prison, he was out of work. So um, that was a drama in itself, you know, trying to teach me to, to, to reverse not being able to see where this, this uh, hook is for the Land Rover um, for the for the trailer to go onto the Land Rover, you know, and it is basically trial and error and trying to line that up precise first time. And if it wasn't in the first time, I was called all the dopey slags under the sun, you know, can you effing get it right? But I did manage to do it and I, and I became quite a master at doing it. Um, so I was towing this like 12 to 15 foot catering trailer every morning down to the docks and picking it up and setting it up with the generator and everything else. I had orders from prison, you know, to take, because he had a load of dogs that he used for hunting. Um, there might have been six, seven dogs at the time, maybe. I'd have to clean them out every day and take them for a walk every day. So I was given orders, make sure, though, I wasn't allowed to go over the woods on my own. I had to make sure one of the kids was with me. Um, so I had all these orders, even though it was nice him not being in the house, I still had the orders backed at. Um, if I went out anywhere, I had to put on the house phone, divert the call to my mobile, because if he phoned whilst in prison and he couldn't get hold of me, there was absolute murder. Um, I can remember going out for my mum's 50th birthday. It was on a Saturday lunchtime to a country pub for a meal and he'd phoned and the call was diverted to my mobile. And he said, you know, where are you to? And I said, oh, I make my mum having lunch. What I was called, I couldn't even repeat it. Um, because I'd gone out for lunch with my mum for her 50th birthday. And he said, you know, and I effing in you, you know, doing the, doing, doing the time and you're out there having, having a whale of a time. You know, it was, it was awful. 
Yeah, he's doing time for behavior that he chose to do. That's the consequence. And for you, you're still holding everything down. You're being given all these orders, all these things to do. So you're not having the life of Riley as as he describes it, but that's the consequence of what he did. And the transference is incredible just to make you feel like you're doing something wrong by going to your mum's 50th birthday. Outrageous. But that wasn't the last time he was in prison, was it? He was sentenced again to another nine months for stealing. So, But they were quite short sentences, as you say. So it doesn't really give you a huge amount of respite. But the important thing was he was known to police Mm -hmm. And he did have convictions. Yeah, and, you know, he had the convictions for the arsenal of weapons, you know, then the, the convictions for the uh, the theft from the, from the employer. And then if you go back further, he had convictions, like you said, for, for the uh, assault on the paramedic. Um, so he was well known to the police. He wasn't hiding, he wasn't invisible. And then later I found out he had an injunction on him from a previous girlfriend. Which, again, is hugely important. So he's known for violence. He he was known for abuse. And even when he came out of prison, the first thing he wanted to do was go and pick up his knives. And you talked about him wanting to have get a one-up on the police. It was about winning and sort of getting one up on them. And he he developed this sort of hatred towards the police, which again, you know, I often hear with psychopaths in particular, it's always about winning or losing. They always want to get the one up there's a game to be played and they have to be on the up and up of it and anyone who gets in their way woe betide them but when when he was in prison for the nine months then he was saying to you that he missed you and that he wanted to be with you and he actually proposed to you from prison yeah my worst might make him true yeah he actually phoned me from prison and said uh, I think we should get married so it wasn't even a proposal like you know uh, will you marry me I love you you know it was I think we should get married um Darren always used to say to me you've passed the test you passed the test you know as if you know there was some prize at the end of it uh you know uh if that was Darren, my goodness, I'd rather have had the booby prize. Um, but yeah, you know, he said, you know, I um, I think we're going to get married. We should get married. Um, and I had to arrange it then whilst he was in prison, ready for when he came out. And you said, uh, well, I mean, your reflection on it was that he was having a difficult time and you found it hard to say no, even though it wasn't a proper proposal. It's you're lucky to be with me and this is going to happen And I think it's really interesting that you felt you couldn't say no because he had had a tough time. And therefore, as girls and women, we are brought up to be polite and to pay attention to other people's needs. But as you said, one of the worst decisions that that you made. But in one sense, it wasn't actually a decision you were making. It sounds to me like he would make those decisions and you would have to fall in line. And if you didn't, he would make your life so miserable the, what other choice was there in in reality? Well, no, definitely wasn't an option. No, wouldn't have been an option. So it was like you know, not a man who would take no yeah. for an answer. Yeah, you know, um, like I said, you talk about, and I think people really have to understand that. Yeah, absolutely. You talk about you know, with the police getting this one up on the police. Darren used to laugh when he, when he was stealing the, the, the cigarettes. He was being followed by the security in Asda and he used to love it because he said to me, it's like cat and mouse. It's like cat and mouse game, you know, and he loved, he loved that. And um, when he went to court one time where he um, 
when he got caught, the um, the security guy had gone to court as well. And I mean, Darren really mocked him in, in you know, outside the court, you know. And there used to be a commercial um, on the TV, an advert for Asda saying he has the price where they tap the back pocket. And Darren smirked at the um, the security guy and done that, the Asda price. Um, you know, really intimidated him and everything else. But, you know, when you're living with somebody who you know what they're capable of, you know, you know, you really know what they're capable of. And, you know, and he's telling you that, you know, and Darren's line to me all the time was there's only one way for you and that's in a wooden box. And I can remember another time that my neighbour, um, who lived next door, Sue and, and Derek, Derek said to Sue the one day, and, and Derek um, was an older guy. Um, you'd see him going off to the pub and coming back, you know, um, just used to say hello to him or whatever. The one day he said to Sue, have you seen Rachel today? And she said, no, why? That's a funny question to ask. He said, because I heard the bin being dragged at the steps at two o'clock this morning. And he thought I might have been in the bin. So, you know, for him to pick up that, you know, and he never witnessed anything. So obviously he heard stuff. But for him to actually make that comment to his wife, that speaks volumes. And Darren used to say openly to people, oh, if Rachel ever left me or left me for another guy, uh, imagine the blood I put her under the patio. And he would say that openly to people. As if joking, but people obviously knew and they understood exactly what he was about. And there's a quote from your book, which I I hope you don't mind me reading out, but it really did stand out to me when you said marrying him would be a lot easier than leaving him. Because at that time in my life then, and it wasn't long after, after when I did leave, but for me, it was easier just to get married because I knew if ever I left him, there was going to be a consequence. And you were always having to manage his, you called them tantrums, but you're risk managing his behaviour all the time, trying to please him, trying to de-escalate things. And you were with him for 12 years at that time, two years of heaven, 10 years of hell. And those threats of there's only, it was another quote, and you've already mentioned it, but there's only one way out for you, Rachel, and that's in a box. It's menacing and it's sinister and it's not joking around. You don't say things like that to somebody that you love or you care about. This is somebody who clearly saw you as his right, his entitlement, his possession, not as an equal, but someone, and you described it as I had to be a mother, a counsellor, a doctor, a punch bag, everything all in one. Yeah, yeah, basically, yeah, I was, and I used to say, um, you know, I got three kids, Darren being the biggest, you know, and even Jack used to say, oh, you're like a child, I'm I'm the adult, you're the child, you know, and that's how he used to behave, almost like a big, big kid. And emotionally, that's probably where he was at, actually. You know, in terms of trauma, when you experience it as a child, it does interrupt everything about your developmental cycle. Now, that's not to excuse his behaviour, but it's to say that oftentimes women and men, women feel that it's their job to fix men who've been abused or where there's been violence or something traumatic in their lives. And men also believe that it's a woman's job to nurture them, counsel them, be the doctor, be the mother, be the person who they have sex with in the bedroom, that the woman has to be all of these things, taking care of their needs 100%. 
And what you're describing, you talked about enduring sex with him. You know, the, there wasn't a love there. There was a fear. Fear was in the room because of the way that he would talk with you, behave towards you, that he'd have these tantrums. And I mean, crikey, a six foot seven, you know, 23 stone guy who really is going to argue with that? Certainly not the police. So what chance did you have in remonstrating or saying something different or exacting anything that you wanted or you needed? So it sounds to me like all of your, everything about your needs got pushed down and actually you had to centre everything on him to keep the peace and to stop the violence and abuse. Just constantly pacifying him to make him happy, you know, any way, shape or form. Food was one way to make him happy. Um, so I was constantly cooking, cooking cakes, um, you know, just all the time, just keeping him happy. Because if he was happy, the household was happy. If he was cheesed off, then we all felt it. And the walking on eggshells, it's a very hard way to live, isn't it? When When you're in it, you don't know an alternative, but when you're out of it, you just realise what a, a an unrealistic set of expectations have been laid down for you and that you're having to map every aspect of your life, the micro and the macro, mapped across onto someone else's desires and needs and wants. And of course, that can change. At the, the flick of a switch, it can change. And then the rules are, have, have changed again and there's contradiction and confusion and there's fear because you can never be what it is. I, I think you said, I couldn't be a better wife, but it was never enough. No, no matter what you no. did, it was just never enough for him. Yeah, it was never enough. And talking about, you know, that walking on eggshells, I can remember my mum made a comment after, and she said, whenever you used to come up the house, she said, you'd sit there with your with your, your hands um class sort of together and you used to twirl your thumbs around and around and around and do you know what I cannot even remember doing it I don't do it anymore but I used to do that sit there obviously it was a nervous thing and just doing my fingers rolling over each other yeah and the watching and the waiting ready for the next yeah. thing the next outburst it's a, it's a really horrific way to live. And oftentimes people just don't really understand that management, that de-escalation. You're constantly on guard, ready for the flashes of the fireworks, the temper. And it did get to a point where other people, I think Claire witnessed him attacking you when your friend Nikki, who was a police officer, was on the phone. And I think he was wanted for assault. And then he threatened you. He said, don't call the police again or don't tell the police my business. And he grabbed you again round the neck and Claire witnessed it and was actually, well, she was totally horrified by what she saw. And what was interesting in your reaction was that it just become so normal. You weren't worried for you, but now you did start to worry about Josh and Jack. You were worried about the kids and the impact that it was having on you. But I think that's such a sad indictment that it had become so normal in your everyday life. Claire was horrified because to her it wasn't normal. For you, it was. But now, of course, you're thinking about the boys. Yeah, and, and I can remember that incident so well that I took a call as I was sat in my car with Claire just about to go out uh, Christmas shopping in the day, one of the few places I could actually go. And I took a call and it was, was Nikki saying that 
you know, the police want want Dan to come down uh, for questioning about an assault and they were going to come up mob handed. And I said, oh, let me just ring him because she knew us because her nan used to live next door. And um, so I give the phone to Darren and he was working on his Land Rover in front of my car. And um, I could pass him the phone and I said, you know, it's Nikki wants to speak to you. And I got back into the car and then about five minutes later, he comes stomping out of the car, threw my phone in the window, then grabbed my hair. And he was you know, going back and forth with my head really ferociously. It actually knocked the uh, rear view mirror off the, the windscreen. And Claire was covered in my hair. Um, and he said to me, you ever effing ring the police on me again about anything? And this is what this phone call was nothing to do with me. You know, he said, and you'll have it. And at that point, then my anger, because, you know, sometimes, you know, we do fight back. We have those moments that we do fight back. And I just put my foot on the accelerator and just sped off. And then she was clear, was just white and just sat there like in shock. And then I drove round the estate, come back, mounted the curb and ran into her house, run up the stairs. And I started screaming like a banshee, don't you ever. And he was sat on the bed crying then. Because now he's the victim because he, he just obviously assaulted me now in front of Claire. So now he needs to look the injured part. And straight away, I went into almost like a pilot mode and said, right. I went in the bathroom, got a flannel washed his face basically and I said do you want to see the police see you crying like this get dressed and get down the station and then off I went shopping and it was almost like I just went into autopilot and like I said that was that was my norm at the time. Well you obviously did and and in those moments the amygdala makes those decisions as well you don't consciously make a decision it happens before you can even blink or think but the fact that he flips the script so well, you know, you are passing on a message. You're not even calling the police. He assaults you. It's witness. Then he goes into victim mode or poor yeah. me syndrome, as yeah. I call it, PMS, because yeah. there's a witness, there's accountability, and he plays that card. So, again, it just shows me it was a conscious choice yeah. on his behalf. And and let's not forget, I mean, you know this, but the, the listeners won't. He went to the gym a lot. He worked out. He took steroids. Um, he spent a lot of time hunting with dogs, watching true crime shows. It's not to say people who watch true crime shows are criminals, by the way. I know a lot of my audience, are, you know, who listen really are into it. But when you add all these things together, this was someone who actually, he consciously dis- made these decisions. It wasn't, uh, well, it was a strategy. And I, every time I hear you describe these things, it's so clear to me that it was a strategy. And him playing the victim well, then you go into the mode of now you get yourself together and get down the police station. And probably he then does what you tell him to do. But, but it's a complete reversal. And that reversal, I mean, underneath everything with him, yes, there is a, a, a man child there that was ill-equipped to deal with life. And that's not an excuse for what he did. He had no emotional capacity Everything was about him. His whole decision-making was revolved around what he needed and what he wanted, that narcissism and that being so egocentric and zero empathy for you. That's the part that's really hard. Empathy lacking for you, for the children, for the boys, 
he's repeating a pattern that he seems to have no awareness that he's repeating and having the same impact on the boys as what his dad right. did on totally. him. Absolutely, 100%. Yeah. You are just a big baby. You know, and I felt that those moments in time when I'm back in the orders at him, get down the police station, you know, I'm feeling a bit in control, but it's not, it's all a game. You know, now I can see it so clearly, you know, okay, I'll go to, you know, the, the submissiveness of him then because of what he's just done. Now, you know, you say the reverse and the flipping it over for me then to feel sorry for him, even though I've just lost a handful of hair and just had my, my head smacked on a rear view mirror. Now he's reversed it all back around. It's so confusing. I mean, it's confusing when you're in it and you're having to process it and you're obviously thinking about the children as well. There's so many parts that are in play, but it sounded to me that he was very strategic and he would be able to read the emotional temperature of things to change in that moment and be what he needed to be to sort of get the get out of jail card or to keep you, which obviously was one of the things that he really wanted to ensure that he kept you controlled. And although you felt at times you were in control, I remember us talking about finances, for example, that you felt you were in charge. You were the one that was dealing with everything household-wise in terms of money. But actually, he was the one that would just demand. He wanted money for steroids or weapons or whatever it was, and he would just take. So it was an illusion of control in many senses. Totally. You know, me having his bank card and making sure the bills are paid. You know, I felt like I was in control of the money. You know, I didn't have to ask for it. I had his bank card. But then at the end of the month, if he wanted, like you said, £300 for steroids or £400 for a new working dog, you know, whatever it was, I had to find that money. I couldn't say to him, well, actually, there's only £250 in the pot and you want £300. But yet I need to get kids coats or whatever. You know, if he wanted that money, I'd have to find it. So, yeah, it was just a total flip reversal again, you know, that illusion that I was in control, but actually I, I was far from it. And you talk about strategic and something just just come back into my mind that whenever Darren went down to the police station for an interview, um, one solicitor made a comment to him and said, you should have actually studied law. He said, because what he was doing in the interviews and Darren would always ask for a copy of the tape and he would come home and play it and listen to him interviewing the police because he would turn it all the way back round on the police, especially if it was a young cop and maybe a little bit wet behind the ears. And it was cringy listening to it and Darren thinking, yes, I've got one up on the cop of day. You know, he asked me this question, but then I took him back to so-and-so, so-and-so, four questions before that. There was always a plan. He was always thinking. Well, it's always a game. That's the thing with psychopaths and it's dominate or be dominated. So they read every situation as a game, a challenge and look for every opportunity to exploit weakness or whatever there might be to exploit, to reverse, to darvo someone and to discredit them and to flip the victim and offender roles. And it sounded to me like he was actually quite good at that. And to have a lawyer say, well, you should have studied law. Well, he was studying it in many senses. He was learning how to get out of situations. You called it if someone's wet behind the, the ears, police officers. But it sounds like in many senses, each time he could talk himself out of a situation. And that, again, would give him more and more confidence each time 
to carry on and it would green light his behaviour. So when was the decision for you where you decided to leave? What what happened? So there was an incident that we'd gone on holiday with Brian and Anne again, and it was the Tenerife, and there was a massive outburst by him. And something changed for me then because he showed me up again in front of him, and I'd gone off down to the beach. I said to Anne, I'm just going to go down to the beach. So I went down the beach and sat on the sunbed, about 20 minutes later, you comes stomping across the sand. Um, so I think it's okay, mate, because he's going to apologise. You know, the same old thing, we can have it. He's going to apologise. Then you'd be all lovely for a couple of days. He'd be Mr. Nice. And then he might be a bit Mr. Moody a day after, but he's going to be nice now. And he came up to me and he said, where's the effing money? And he snatched my bag out of my hand. And I said, well, hang on a minute. He goes, no, you effing hang on a minute. And for me then, it's like, whoa. This has changed because now normally he would be on the lounger next to me apologising, maybe crying, you know, saying it won't happen again, don't know what come over me, that same old BS. Um, but it didn't. And for me, it was like, oh, this, this, is, this is a new one on me now. There's not even an apology. So I come home from that holiday in the June and on July the 9th, um, we'd had another... Um, another row, and that was following. Um, what was that? There, there was a row about his bank card again. He give me my effing bank card, so he wanted that back. There was a row on the Friday night, Saturday morning. I was going to go and do uh, hair for a wedding, and Darren had decided the night before because I wasn't playing ball with him that he was going to take a few tablets and end up down in the hospital, which he did. I didn't go down the hospital. He was taken by his sister and brother-in-law. Then he come home um, early in the morning, I think it was, and um, he come up the stairs. Um, I'd gone down to make a cup of coffee, and he'd come up the stairs, and he didn't realise that I was downstairs. Then he come back down the stairs, and I can remember being out the kitchen, and Darren was behind me, and I could feel his breath breathing down my neck and um, he said well what are you going to do about it and I said you know what I said I've had a gut full of you I said I'm, I'm, I'm going to leave you and as I proceeded to walk in from the kitchen into the living room and I mean I'd been crying my eyes were stinging because I just thought I can't do this anymore and then he grabbed me by my neck and started throttling me and the kids come both come running down the stairs Jack had a baseball bat and Josh was doing a silent 999 call and they said they could hear a sound that woke him up and they thought it was a pig. They thought they could hear a pig squealing downstairs and that's obviously the sound that I was making being strangled. I managed to break free from him when the kids come in and um, and Jack was like, you know, what are you doing? Why are you doing? Then again, he started crying, massive outbursts. Kids went back upstairs to their bedrooms Um Darren then was, was sobbing, you know, grabbed me by my both hands and started pulling me up the stairs. And I just knew what he was going to do. Now he's going to turn into the victim again now. You know, he's done this really in front of the kids. He'd never done anything like this before, you know, where the kids, you know, heard me being strangled or anything like that. And then he pulled me into the bedroom and next to Darren's bed, there was a, a, a three drawers and in the top drawer was all his arsenal of weapons. And he was trying to open the drawer and hold me at the same time, which he couldn't do. And I managed to break free. 
And then Jack came out of the bedroom and said, you know, what, what what's going on, man? What's going on? And I said, go on, slit your wrist in front of your 16-year-old son, thinking that I would shame him and he would put the knife back in the drawer. So by the time I got down to the bottom of the stairs, Jack is shouting, oh my God, mum, he's done it, he's done it. And at that point, then I thought, if he's capable of doing that in front of his son, what else is he capable of doing? And then my fear of staying with Darren became greater than the fear of leaving him. My goodness. I mean, that's so much to unpack that things escalated to such a point that the boys are witnessing. In fact, they were woken up by him assaulting you. And then he slashes his own wrists in front of Jack. But the message to you was very clear that he was capable of anything at that point. And I think that that's, there was a quote in your book where you said, and just as you did then, the fear of staying had been had become greater than the fear of leaving. Yeah, yeah. And I can remember then when the ambulance was called, um, because Jack had phoned his sister who phoned the ambulance. Um, and before the ambulance arrived, two police officers arrived and they run up the stairs and I could hear him shouting to him, get out of my effing house, you bunch of commandos get out of my effing house and at that point these two police officers run back down the stairs came into the conservatory where I I was clearly visibly not okay and I had my dressing gown up right underneath my chin hiding any you know marks from the strangulation I had all black mascara down my face and police officer said is everything all right and I went "Mm," like that and off they went So off these two police officers go now. So I'm thinking, you know, what is going to happen now? And then next, the ambulance guy comes, the paramedic, and Darren came down the stairs um, and he was crying. Now he's a proper victim now saying, I think I think my miss, and he said, oh, is this your wife? And he said, and I think she's going to finish with me now. She's not going to be my missus anymore. Unbelievable. Yeah. So he makes it again about him. Yeah. But can I just say the police response, I am aghast at hearing that. And I and I have heard it a, a couple of times, but I it still just makes me so angry hearing that you were in that situation, that you were vulnerable, that you had been assaulted and they didn't ask any probing questions about what was going on in terms of your risk and your safety. And that's absolutely prime where dash should have been used where questions should have been asked about what was happening to you and the children because they were in the house too and for them to just turn tail and take your answer which obviously all your non-verbals all your behavior shows that there's a problem that's why when i train officers and i've trained in that force area i always talk about it's the totality of everything that's happening it's not just someone answering yes or no if they're sat in a certain way, they're holding themselves in a certain way, you have to ask questions. If there are children present, if they're not communicative to you, there could be a reason because they're so fearful. It's not because something's not happening. So having that professional curiosity, as we call it, but unfortunately, it's a very rare thing, professional curiosity, people not asking the right questions. So he now has flipped the script. He's the victim saying that she's going to leave me as if now this is on you, it's on your behaviour, which is classic perpetrator behaviour. I mean, I see it time and time again. But in this situation, the fact that he has tried to 
take his own life, even if it's superficial, your read of that situation was exactly right and accurate. If somebody has suicidal ideation, they can very quickly have homicidal ideation. So the risk to you and the children with strangulation makes it seven times more likely that he would try and kill you. And yet this is one of the highest risk situations with separation, escalation, coercive control, all the behaviours that have been described, and yet no one's asking questions about you and the children. The the only safety those police officers were concerned about that day was their own. Unbelievable. And so does Darren go off to hospital at at that stage? What happens thereafter? So he went off to hospital and um, I moved out for a couple of days and he'd gone up his sister's to stay. And at that point then it was like, right, you've really got to go with this now. And I did. I'd gone into the solicitors and I'd filed for divorce. And if, if I remember rightly, I think Darren was up his sister's for about a fortnight before he decided to come back. Um, and Jack said to me, you, you know, you've got to move out because his words to me, Jack's words to me was, Da, because he used to call him Darren, Da is coming back and he said he's going to make you live in again. Oh. So it was like, right, i got to get out. And Jack actually helped me pack the car. It was on a Saturday morning, sunny morning. It was like four, half past four in the morning. I thought, right, I was one step ahead of Darren. I thought, get up early, pack the car and go. And that's what, that is exactly what I did. Okay, I'm jumping back in here. Now, throughout the last two episodes, you've heard about the escalating abuse, control and violence and the increasing risk, making Rachel feel that she had no other option but to leave. Often women are asked, why didn't you leave? Or why did you stay? When we should be asking, Why does he do that and how do we make him stop? But in reality, the conundrum facing many women is, if she stays, she dies. If she leaves, she dies. And the system is stacked against you. So let me ask you this. What would you do? That's the question I often pose to professionals in a training session, forcing them to stand in the victim's shoes and therefore forcing them to empathise and see a new perspective. Rachel said herself it was more dangerous to stay, even though she knew Williams would track her down and come after her. And so she leaves him, in the early hours of the morning with her young son Jack, and it's Jack who tells her she has to go. Separation is a high risk factor for serious harm and femicide. Rachel knew that. Most women do. And when an abuser engages in coercive control and stalking and makes a threat to kill, when these high risk factors co-occur, these are the most dangerous of situations for women. And when you add in finality and the abuser knowing that she's intent on going and they feel they have nothing left to lose, that sense of male entitlement, male privilege, the fragile ego, the narcissism, and with the rejection and humiliated fury, an overriding sense of the need for revenge kicks in. This is an extremely dangerous combination. But these behaviours are almost always overlooked. It's the most dangerous of times when the perpetrator is hell-bent on revenge, is intent on following through on their threats and has no fear of the consequence, particularly an abuser who's six foot seven and twenty stone and one that follows through on what he says. Williams had suicidal ideation which can quickly become homicidal ideation and lead to action. 
And so Rachel and Jack knew this. Rachel knew she had no option but to wake in the early hours and run for their lives. Now to find out what happened next, join me back in the intelligence cell next week with Rachel for the final episode. Until then, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instinct. And here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. The first is a huge thank you to all of you, my lovely listeners and crime analysts, for tuning in every week. The second is an ask. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review on whichever platform you listen to me on. It really helps others find me and helps with the ratings. So thank you, thank you. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Tim Hansen at Half Ogre Studios. Cover art and graphics by Chris Raybottom at Syndicate. And music by Kilrood. private Christian University is one of the largest and fastest growing universities in the country, offering more than 270 programs online. In addition to federal grants and aid, GCU's online students received nearly $130 million in institutional scholarships in 2022. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu slash myoffer to see the scholarships you may qualify for.